This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The country has experienced a seismic political shift. Republicans having won the White House with a populist political outsider. Meanwhile, Democrats are assessing why they lost and how they'll win again. We'll focus on both today. One criticism Republicans leveled at Donald Trump during the campaign was that he's not a true conservative, that his positions on the size of government, foreign policy and entitlements don't line up. So what's the future of conservatism now that Trump is the GOP's highest profile figure? Francis Beckwith is the visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at CU Boulder. His full-time appointment is at Baylor University in Texas, where he's a professor of church-state studies. Francis, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Before we get into the future of conservatism, let's set the groundwork for what it means to be a conservative. What values have people who identify as conservatives traditionally held? I think generally someone who considers himself or herself conservative believes that there are certain kinds of givens uh, about human nature and human life that the government should recognize and assist in flourishing. Uh, The conservative, for example, looks at innovations or, uh, let's say, uh, attempts to sort of tinker with traditional institutions is not necessarily bad in themselves, but we should give a greater deference to those things that we've inherited from our predecessors. That's a sort of general definition. Uh, I think it comes out, though, differently in different nations and in different histories. So in the United States, for example, I think the Cold War had a big impact on American foreign policy and people that identified themselves as conservatives. On social issues, you have Supreme Court opinions like Roe v. Wade that served as a catalyst for people that identified as social conservatives. So I think what you find is that there are different types of conservatives, and a lot of times their identity as conservatives usually arises as a consequence of some event or series of events or legal opinion so in some ways, conservatism has the disadvantage of, of not being – doesn't really have a vision of where society is moving or heading. Do you think then that Trump is a true conservative? In terms of thinking of the sorts of issues that animate conservatives over the past 30 years, probably not. I think, for example, uh, his views on uh, foreign policy – and his uh, resistance to a kind of interventionist view of the United States in terms of our role in the world, I think is not consistent with what would be called traditional conservatism, at least what what we are aware of of the past 20 or 30 years. On the other hand, though, there is actually a tradition within conservatism of being somewhat isolationist. So there's a sense in which he's actually going further back in American history to an era in which conservatives had a different view about the role of the United States on the international scene. Now, on social questions, uh, he's identified himself as someone opposed to abortion. On issues concerning uh, gay marriage, uh, he seems to be somewhat liberal. So it's difficult to say, but I'd say in general, no, he's not a traditional conservative. With that in mind, then, what would you consider the the millions of voters that helped nominate him? Are they conservatives? That's, again, a very difficult question to answer. My, my sense is that you had within the party, and I also think in the larger American public, I guess uh, a sense of being dispossessed. And I think this explains, for example, why 
uh, Trump did so well in the Rust Belt. As we know, in the past couple of elections, I think going all the way back to 1988, the Democrats have dominated uh, that region of the country. Wisconsin, Michigan. That's right. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa. Those states, uh, you know, in some they were very close, but they all they all went for Trump. And it seems to me that you had in in those particular areas large segments of of white male, not college educated, blue collar individuals that I think sense that they weren't getting their part of the American dream. I do think that that really was the difference uh, in this election and classifying them as conservatives. I think, again, that's I think that's difficult to answer. I think in many ways they are similar to the uh, what were once called Reagan Democrats, those individuals that voted for, for Ronald Reagan in both 1980 and 1984, but who are registered Democrats. And well, Trump's presidential campaign energized those voters. It did disillusion some longtime conservatives and moderate Republicans. Uh, I want to play an excerpt from a speech independent presidential candidate Evan McMullen gave Tuesday night. The Republican Party can no longer be considered the home for conservatives. Conservatism is about protecting the fundamental rights that I mentioned before. That we are all equal, no matter the color of our skin, the faith that we practice, or certainly our gender. We are all human beings created equal. We all have liberty to pursue happiness in the way we want. It appears that he's describing the alt-right movement, and alt-right supporters back Trump and say they reject mainstream conservatism in favor of more nationalistic, race-based ideals. What are your thoughts on that? I think Mick Mullen uh, is correct. In fact, uh, in my own writings over the past uh, couple of uh, months since early this year, I've been quite critical of of the Trump campaign and and some of these tactics and uh, comments made by by his supporters. Uh, as somebody who you know became a a political conservative in college as a result of of Ronald Reagan as a, as a real big influence, a lot of what came out of the Trump campaign and his supporters didn't seem at all consistent with what drew me uh, as a youngster to conservatism. One of the things that, that Reagan had about him was a sense of optimism, a sense of being principled on these issues of, of, of liberty and economic freedom, as well as a respect for you know traditional institutions and civic groups and so forth. And so, yeah, I think McMullen uh, has a point. And McMullen did well in Utah. He received more than 20 percent of the vote there. He's calling for a new conservative movement. Do you think the Republican Party will fracture? I think it's going to be remade. Um, I, I think fracturing, uh, just from a practical standpoint, is is too expensive, uh, and and in the long run, or in the short run, uh, it's going to be it would be very difficult to let's say sustain a third party that would be effective. What you essentially would be doing is conceding the next couple of presidential elections to uh, the Democrats. And I don't think that's going to happen. I do think there are going to be some people in the Republican Party, people in leadership, uh, who will, in fact, try their best to uh, assimilate these alt-right folks, but at the same time trying to maintain the unity in the, in, in the party. I, I don't know how they're going to do it. It's going to be difficult, but we've seen it before. Think of, for example, the uh, coalitions uh, that arise 
uh, in the 1940s out of the New Deal. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was able to keep together Dixiecrats, uh, as they called themselves, uh, northern liberal Democrats and people uh, from uh, the far west. So, you know, these sorts of coalitions have worked before. The question now, I think, is actually for the Democratic Party. What sort of uh, things can be done there to uh, reinvigorate that party? So I do think... uh, you know, who would have thought this 48 hours ago? I would not have thought that. In fact, I my thoughts were the Republican Party is doomed and, and uh, there are going to be all these factions. But I do think at the end of the day that that success is going to, at least for the sh- in the short run, mask some of the deeper differences. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Francis Beckwith. He's the visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at CU Boulder for this academic year and joins me to discuss the future of conservatism in the United States. Now, Trump has promised to nominate a conservative justice to the U.S. Supreme Court to replace the late Antonin Scalia. He's released a list of about 20 names, which includes several Coloradans. It's possible he may get to nominate more judges during his presidency, and he's also suggested his appointees would protect the Second Amendment, uh, reverse Roe v. Wade. Uh, Depending on the justices he picks and are nominated, what does that do for your ideals of conservatism? I think in terms of, you know, traditional conservative views on constitutional interpretation, I think what he's saying is he's going to select originalists, that is, those that believe that the right way to interpret the Constitution is in terms of how those that originally uh, penned it, 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 people at the time originally interpreted it, or or the original meaning. My own view is that, obviously, rhetorically, I think he has to say that to get people to vote for him who may otherwise uh, not vote for him. That is, people like on the religious conservatives and uh, uh, other types who may not like Trump's uh, public behavior, things that he said. Uh, I I do think, though, that the right way to talk about this in terms of conservatism is to say that he's going to nominate originalists. That is, I think it's a mistake to actually say that you're going to uh, have a litmus test in terms of actual cases that are going to be he- uh, heard, heard before the court. And I don't think there's any doubt that in the next four to five years, there will probably be another abortion case and there may be a Second Amendment case as well. But I do think for conservatives that are originalists, uh, uh, who, again, who may have been uneasy or hesitant to vote for Trump, that sort of talk probably got their votes. What do you think we're going to be seeing in the next uh, four years of the Republican Party? I think it's changing. Uh, You have the Republican Party uh, right now, at least in terms of those that supported Trump, uh, very much against what George Bush did in terms of the invasion of Iraq. This is something that I think the Republican leadership underestimated in terms of People's generally, generally, uh, after seeing what has happened in Iraq, eventually come to the conclusion that it was maybe not a good idea. And uh, the fact that you had the Bernie Sanders people and the Trump people actually agreeing on what would have been the right course of action. And so I do think in terms of foreign policy, uh, you see a major shift. I think the cultural issues, I think abortion is going to, it remains the same. In some ways, the Republican Party is actually more strongly against abortion than it was 30 years ago. I think on issues concerning gay marriage, I think that uh, the party is probably going to moderate. I think the concern is going to be 
on these cases involving uh, religious liberty, uh, like the case in Colorado and in Washington and in New Mexico involving proprietors that refuse to participate in same-sex weddings. I think it's going to be on those sorts of questions and not on you know, the particular issue itself. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Francis Beckwith is the Visiting Scholar in Conservative Thought and Policy at CU Boulder for the 2016-2017 academic year. Up next, former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb on how the Democratic Party moves forward. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. With the Republican Party winning the presidency and maintaining control of Congress, Democrats are faced with a very different future than they envisioned just days ago. Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb was in New York Tuesday evening with his nominee, Hillary Clinton, and the following day for her concession speech. But besides the loss to the Republicans, there are divisions inside the Democratic Party to deal with, an issue Webb addressed in his July speech at the Democratic National Convention. Yesterday, I was proud to take part in the establishment of the Unity Reform Commission, which was formed in collaboration between the Clinton campaign and the Sanders campaign and the DNC. The commission is made up of representatives from both campaigns and the Democratic National Committee, and it is charged with assessing and improving our party's presidential nominating process. A member of the Democratic Party's Unity Reform Commission, Mayor Webb, is traveling today and joins us by cell phone from New York to discuss party reform and what happens next for the Democrats. Mayor, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you today? I'm fine. Following Trump's election, there has been discussion surrounding the traditional Republican Party and its continued role in American politics. What about the traditional Democratic Party? Do you think there's a need for a fundamental shift in direction and approach? Well, I think a couple of things have to happen is that, uh, one, we have to do an analysis of what transpired during the election itself. Uh, The second aspect is there has to be... uh, we're going to have to look at the whole Democratic National Committee process, the structure of how that works, and then put together a plan and move forward from there. Uh, obviously, we're all disappointed. Uh, I think the United States uh, also went through our own Brexit. Uh, so we followed the United Kingdom and also um, and also uh, Colombia. And I think that um, uh, President-elect Trump, his campaign hit into some nerves and issues as it relates to uh, unemployment, especially around areas of uh, of coal country in Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia. But he also used uh, code words as it dealt with racial issues, social issues, women's issues, uh, targeting uh, blacks, Hispanics, and others that also brought uh, a large vote out that ordinarily doesn't show up that uh, obviously was very disappointing given the fact that the voters that we tend to depend on uh, many of them, the turnout was much lower. And there have been the multiple reports that, that 7 million fewer Democrats voted in 2016 than four years ago. Was Hillary Clinton the right candidate? Well, I think she was the right candidate because she won the nomination. Uh, that's the way the process works. You can't complain about if you if you lose the game and then say, well, someone else should have been playing. Uh So from that standpoint, we always have known that there's always been an anti-Clinton faction for whatever reasons, both against Bill Clinton as well as against Hillary. 
but the reality is that you have to look at the larger picture. Now, obviously, uh, the other aspect of why there was some dropout, anytime there's a first, whether it's a first black president, first black mayor, first Latino mayor, first Latino senator, the first time you get a much larger turnout than you do the second time. The second time, the, the, the turnout tends to drop some, but it's still high because you're trying to maintain what you have. And then, then there's a drop-off. I think a lot of people in this country, and I, you know, I campaigned in 14 different states, and one of the things I heard a lot from uh, a lot of different people is they didn't want to see the con continuation of the third term of Barack Obama. And if there's one area of concern I have is that we continue to preserve the legacy of Barack Obama as president and the first African-American president of this country. And as president-elect Trump, I certainly will honor the process he won. I certainly will honor him as president. But where we differ, I will fight him tooth and nail as I would anyone. So I would fight him tooth and nail in terms of trying to roll back, roll, roll uh, versus roll be Wade. I'll fight him in terms of doing away with some of the programs and voting rights and other programs that we fought to uh, instill. And the same as uh, we fought Lyndon Johnson on the Vietnam War and fought others on, on the war in Iraq or fought apartheid in South Africa. Uh, that's what America's about. You have a choice to be able to defend your issues and fight for what you believe in. As we said, the rancor in this election season wasn't limited to Hillary Clinton and President-elect Trump. Before the general election, there was also the highly publicized fight for the Democratic nomination between Clinton and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. A vocal group of your party says they were ignored. Did your nominating process work as it should have? The nominating process worked as it should have. Uh, you know, you can't... <laughs> You don't go on a basketball court and all of a sudden say you want to change the height of the basket. Uh, that's the height of the basket. And that's the rules you play with that. Hmm. Uh, we, you know, I said to a lot of the Sanders people at the convention and during the Colorado delegation that we admire the uh, energy that they brought. We admire the number of young people that uh, were involved in the campaign. And the Clinton campaign reached out. Matter of fact, if you look at the Democratic platform, it's more of a Sanders platform than it is a Clinton platform. We took all the suggestions, primarily, that they made, more than 90% of them, and put them in the Democratic platform. The Democratic platform had the most liberal agenda it's ever had. And some people have suggested that the agenda was too liberal, and that's why we lost some of those other states, in terms that it didn't seem that like we were uh, really going after trying to provide a mechanism by which they heard the message for poor poor and lower income people uh, throughout this country. So what is so next? I, 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 think that, I think that's just a focus argument. That, that's, that's a whiner's argument. And with this unit, unity commission that you have formed, it's something that must be discussed. What are the next steps then with regards to this uh, ref, well, reforming think, of this process? I, yeah, I, yeah, I think the next steps are how do we build upon the party, make the party stronger, so that we can go in and, and, and recapture, first of all, we have to recapture the elections in 2018. Uh, in Colorado, I was very disappointed, and uh, I knew Denver would do well. Uh, Denver always tends to do well. We had 80% turnout in voting. But what I was really disappointed in was the uh, number of votes that uh, uh, State Senator Morgan Carroll received in her race for Congress. I think that's a real loss of Morgan not winning that congressional race. And so we need to continue to open up the process. We need to continue to open it up 
for people, and uh, and we also have to remind people that the liberal that the Democratic Party has a liberal wing, it has a moderate wing, and it has a a uh, Reagan Democratic wing, and a lot of that Reagan Democratic wing went to Donald Trump, and we have to accept the fact that if we're going to be the party of inclusiveness to everybody, but don't you? We have to have a tent broad enough for everyone. But do you feel that that there was a segment of the Democratic base, especially in places uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that was ignored during this campaign? Oh no, I don't. Hmm. I mean, uh, I think. I think you could make that claim in, in Wisconsin, but I think in Michigan, uh, surrogates were in Michigan all the time. Uh, the president's been to Michigan. Uh, Bill Clinton was in Michigan. Uh, Hillary Clinton was in. Tim Kaine was in Michigan. I mean, Michigan got a lot of attention. Now, we can't... The fact of the matter is, a lot of people in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio, which we considered part of the Rust Belt, they were voting. They were voting that for a message that, in some cases, some may even suggest out of fear that after a black president, you end up with a white female as president. We also know that there's some people that won't vote for a woman to be president of the United States or governor or U.S. senator because they're women, regardless of I their party that, affiliation. Uh, regardless of their party affiliation, but. But the fact of the matter is, we had a woman nominee. Uh, the other party didn't. And so some people voted against, some people vote gender. Now, I think that's wrong. I think it's backward. I think it's intellectually ignorant. But the fact is that that's how some people believe. believe. And in America, they have a right to exercise their choice if they believe that. But it does say that we, we have work to do in some of those states. And that the Trump campaign, through their data analysis, did a better job of finding out where some of those weak spots were in our coalition that normally normally votes uh, with us as a party. Briefly, do you think uh, this formal plan, this Unity Commission plan, will be in place in the next year or so? I think the Democratic Party will elect a new chair, new officers, and we'll put a plan together that will get us back on the court competitive for the 2018 election. Mayor, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb is a member of the Democratic Party's Unity Reform Commission. He joined us by telephone from New York. Up next, the impact of third-party and unaffiliated voters on this election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There was a lot of talk this election about the strength of third-party candidates and how unaffiliated voters might sway the results. Let's zero in now on what happened in Colorado with Seth Maskett. He's a political science professor at the University of Denver. Also with us is Jay North, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Colorado. Welcome to you both. Thank you. The Libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson won about 5% of the vote in Colorado. The other third-party candidates collectively won another 3%. That's far more votes for third-party candidates than in Colorado's recent presidential elections. And Gary Johnson did slightly better in Colorado than he did nationally. Jay, what does this say about the Libertarian Party in particular in Colorado? Well, I think a lot more people are paying attention to the Libertarian Party, um, especially with Gary Johnson. With with his presence being out there, people were turning and looking in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, We were expecting more votes, but that didn't happen. 
Seth, the 5% Gary Johnson ultimately won in Colorado was less than polls had indicated. What happened? That's actually something we generally see in presidential elections, that third-party candidates like the Libertarians usually are polling a little bit better in the summer and early fall, and a lot of that support tends to fizzle away in the last few weeks before Election Day as uh, more voters are exposed to the two major party candidates' ideas and essentially kind of come home to those two major parties. And there were higher registrations for the Libertarian or the third parties as well, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, we jumped 26 percent since January. Some... Democratic uh, Democrats have been talking about third party candidates and their effect on the presidential election in, in key swing states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. They say votes for third party presidential candidates may have swayed the election toward Donald Trump. Uh, Seth, what's your assessment? Um, just from what I've seen, and I, I haven't seen too many detailed polling breakdowns of this, but it seems like if we, you look over the last month of the campaign, uh, as Gary Johnson's support fell a bit, he was polling about 8 or 9% nationally, and then it dropped down to like 4 or 5% toward election day. As his support fell, uh, Donald Trump's support increased, whereas Hillary Clinton's was staying about the same. I mean, it suggests that um, a lot of uh, what was powering Gary Johnson's candidacy was uh, more Republican-leaning voters who were at least initially uncomfortable with Donald Trump and uh, then became more comfortable with him as time went on. And it's been reported that some Republicans say that the reason the state went for Clinton was because a lot of them voted for Gary Johnson. Uh, Clinton won by about two and a half percent. Johnson won five percent of the vote. Jay, do you believe this candidacy uh, made it, made that difference? I do not. If you look at what people really talk about and do, um, the Libertarian Party actually pulls from both parties. But the losing party will always blame the Libertarian Party. But it seems both parties here are saying that there, is, there has been a third-party effect here. There has been a third-party effect, but it affects both parties. Does that question make you bristle? I mean, I know your candidate you know, became pretty upset when he was asked about that, pulling votes away from the, the two major parties. Usually it does just because we hear it so much. They keep blaming somebody else when it really is the candidate who lost the votes, not another party. The Libertarian Party candidate for Senate, uh, Lily Tang Williams, got about 3 percent of the vote. Uh, we had her on our show. Did you expect more support for her given Gary Johnson's showing? I did. We thought that she would actually pull – I mean bring in a lot more votes. Didn't expect her to win but 3 percent was pretty low for her. I, th- I thought she'd be around 6 or 7 percent. So what happened in that situation? Uh, well, I would say you know part of it that sh- shows some of the weaknesses of uh, both of the presidential candidates. I mean, you really did have, in many ways, historically unpopular presidential nominees with with pretty high un- unfavorability ratings. I think uh, uh, Trump was polling uh, somewhat worse in that regard, and that just meant more of uh, voters at the presidential level were open to the ideas of another party. I see. I want to talk about the the number of unaffiliated voters. Uh, it's risen so much in the past decade in Colorado that they now outnumber Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Seth, what do you know about unaffiliated voters in Colorado and who they voted for? Well, we don't have a great sense yet, but um, at least those calling themselves independents within Colorado, they split marginally toward Trump, uh, about, I think, 42 percent to 39 percent. Um, so they were they were roughly split, but leaned had a, had a slight Trump lean to them. And Jay, the Libertarian Party actually started in Colorado, Colorado Springs, yeah, yeah. Colorado Springs there, and there were nearly thirty Libertarians on the state ballot this year. Registrations are both up in Colorado, Libertarian and Green parties. How are you going to keep this trend going? Uh, we are just going to keep spreading the message. If you actually look at the Libertarian Party statement of principles, it's the message. 
it, it isn't really to get someone elected. Can we spread the message and move that Overton window? And if we do that, I think we'll continue to get candidates to, to join the ballot. And Seth, in terms of keeping what you just heard here, do you think unaffiliated voters may start moving to these third-party candidates? Um, I don't know that they ever will in very large numbers. I, I don't think we're likely to see a presidential election quite like this one any anytime again soon. Um, but an election like this one does certainly increase uh, the attention given to uh, to libertarians and other uh, other third parties. Um, it's possible they could get the, enough support to show up in a, in a in a debate for a governor's race or for a presidential race in the near future. And that certainly helps the party get its message out to more voters and, and possibly increase interest. We heard a bit uh, earlier in the show about the new conservative movement and, and new parties that may be branching off the Republican Party. Uh, does that concern you that there may be multiple uh, major parties in a kind of a, a third party uh, realm? No. I think the more parties out there, the more people voicing their opinions is better than just two. If we have 16 parties, that would be just fantastic. Seth? Well, we have you know institutional election rules in this country that very strongly favor a two-party system. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it has to always be these two major parties, um, and it doesn't mean there can't be some shuffling around of those coalitions. And um, libertarians have often been kind of instrumental in uh, siphoning off numbers of voters from uh, from either party and and forcing uh, the major party candidates to possibly uh, shift their positions on some issues. Uh, two ballot measures that passed in Colorado will now allow unaffiliated voters to participate in primary elections. How does that affect state politics in the future? Um, that could change things pretty substantially. Um, we've had a closed caucus system, which meant you know relatively lower turnout and only registered Democrats and registered Republicans participating in, in those parties' presidential candidacies and, and uh, further down the ballot. So this simply means that um, candidates have an incentive to appeal to a much broader sense, a, a broader range of voters' views. Um, it's to their advantage to try and reach out to this, you know, at least a third of the electorate now uh, that's uh, unaffiliated between the two major parties and maybe open to some newer ideas, newer suggestions. Um, it could really change uh, how politicking is done right prior to the primary. Jay, what do you think? Uh, the Libertarian Party is going to opt out of each one of those so we won't be a part of the primaries. Um, and it's more on principle than it is on practice. Talk about that a bit more. So the Libertarian Party does not believe that anybody should pay for their primaries. And so when you have the government do the primaries – Which is what is currently in a caucus system the government pay – well, the, the parties pay for this. The parties pay for the caucus. Mm -hmm. When it goes to the primaries, the government pays for it. So now the government is paying for all those primaries for a private entity. And is that that is, is a concern for you? That they're paying for the primaries? Yes, we, we before the um, before the election, they were going around and doing um, panels. The, I don't remember who was doing it, um, and we would show up at every one of those and say, you know, the Libertarian Party is against having government pay for primaries. Seth Jay, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Certainly. Thank you. Seth Maskett is a political science professor at the University of Denver. Jane North is chairman of Colorado's Libertarian Party. There were a total of 22 presidential candidates in Colorado this year. All you need to land on the ballot is $1,000 and nine friends to vouch for you. Before the election, we met this candidate. My fellow Americans, my name is Rod Silva, and I am running for president of the United States of America as an independent candidate on behalf of the Nutrition Party. 
Well, an update now. The most recent numbers show Rod Silva of the Nutrition Party garnered 643 votes in Colorado. Pat Schroeder had hoped Hillary Clinton would break a glass ceiling that she herself did not. Schroeder explored a White House bid in 1987 after becoming the first woman elected to Congress from Colorado. She thinks sexism was one of many factors that contributed to Clinton's loss. Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner reached Schroeder in Florida, where she lives now, the day after the election. Congresswoman, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to go back to the fall of 1987, This is when you decided to leave the race for president. Right. Did it feel like the country was very close to having a woman as a major party candidate or even president then? Did it feel imminent, even though you were stepping out? No, it didn't at all. In fact, at that time, we were getting polls showing that 25% of the people were saying they wouldn't vote for a woman for president. But the number was even higher if you asked them if they had friends that would not vote for president. And I tended to believe the second one even more. Hmm. And you just can't write off that big a section of the population. I believe it was Time Magazine did polls and found out that I would always come out third, that I did very well on all of the statistics of that I think it was honest, I think it was hardworking, you know, all those things. But I would still come out third among them. And to me, there was no way to get over that. I had thought that after the Ferraro experience in 1984 as Vice President... Geraldine Ferraro running on the ballot. Geraldine Ferraro, when she was running as Vice President with Mondale, I thought everybody had gotten so comfortable with that. But then... When I looked at it and I started traveling around the country and I realized how many parts of the country hadn't elected a woman to really anything, (laughs) they certainly weren't going to consider a woman for president. (laughs) Yeah, because when you ran for Congress in 72, it was still really unusual for women to even work full time outside the House. That's right. And there were only 14 women in the House of Representatives and half of them had taken over and gotten elected after their husband died. So you could say basically there were seven women there that had run in their own names. It was in Civic Center Park in Denver when you announced that you wouldn't continue your run for president because you were behind in recruiting delegates and fundraising. This summer, I set out to see if it was too late to mount a campaign Not a symbolic campaign, but a winning campaign for the presidency of the United States. The image of the press conference is enduring uh, because of what happened about halfway through. This has been a very difficult decision because of the incredible encouragement you've all given me. And I know your courage, your commitment, your vision and your vitality are the American dream. We can hear you choking up, Pat Schroeder. Uh, Right. You had had to pause. Your husband came over to offer some comfort. You got some criticism for that, including from some women who said it made women look weak. Um, Oh, man, did I ever, did I ever. Actually, you know, it's interesting because 
what has happened during this campaign is that the Hillary campaign hasn't had time to talk to a lot of the foreign press, so they've sent them over here. And the Dutch came in and did a big, long thing, and they found the woman who had written the most scathing editorial you've ever seen about uh, Congresswoman Schroeder has set back women in America for at least 50 years (laughs) because she shed some tears, and on and on and on. And they found her and and interviewed her. She now says she wished she hadn't done that and she was overreacting. But Mm. no, no, it became who could lecture me the most on that. And yet men were weeping uh, all the time. I mean, sports guys, Sununu, the president, uh, President Reagan. So really it, it was kind of a different standard I always said maybe I should get Kleenex to be my corporate sponsor, and I also used to say I'll debate anybody. I don't want anybody's finger on the button who doesn't cry, and if you Mm -hmm. want somebody's finger on the button that doesn't cry, let's debate. Did you actually keep a file, I understand, of of, of male politicians who cried? For a very long time, yes. I had a whole file of uh, just clipping it out. And and remember Boehner, who was the recent Speaker of the House. John Boehner. He used to choke up constantly. And I kept waiting for these scathing things about how he had ruined men's chances for the rest of the century. (laughs) Well, and what was interesting is it was in such stark contrast to who you are. I mean, a tough woman, I mean, who got a pilot's license at 15, went through Harvard Law with a class that was almost entirely male. One of my favorite quotes of yours, uh, when you were asked how you could be a congresswoman and a mother, you said, I have a brain and a uterus. I use both. Yep. That was my... (laughs) Unfortunately, may your words be tender and juicy. I had to eat them a lot. You are 76. Is that right? That's correct. Do you think you will see a female president in your lifetime, Petroner? I had always hoped, but I really worry I won't now. I'm looking at the bench. There may be somebody on the bench I haven't seen. But uh, we have two sterling new members of Congress down here that I'm very excited about. You're Stephanie in Murphy. Yes, she was a, uh, a Vietnamese immigrant. There are pictures of the Navy picking up her family in a boat when she was a baby. And Val Demings, who is an African-American, who has been uh, a sheriff down here and a fabulous candidate, too. So uh, we've got three down here, but outside of that, I can't see much to get excited about. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Pat Schroeder, speaking with Ryan Warner. She represented Colorado in Congress for 24 years. In 1987, Schroeder explored a presidential run. This year, she supported Hillary Clinton, who lost her bid for the White House. Coming up, we check back in with two Coloradans who ran for office for the first time this election and how they fared. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
It was a disappointing election day for two first-time candidates in Colorado that CPR News has been following this election season. Democrat Electra Johnson lost her bid for El Paso County Commissioner, and Republican Kevin Sippel lost his race for Boulder County Commissioner. Johnson, an architect inspired to run by Bernie Sanders, was defeated by opponent Stan Vanderwerf by six percentage points, a relatively narrow margin in a county where Republicans outnumbered Democrats by two to one. I think my results say that even in the deepest red county in Colorado, people are deeply dissatisfied and ready for new ideas. I had lots of Republicans voting for me. I had lots of people posting on my page who said they voted for Trump and for me, which was just absolutely wild. I think our our team did a absolutely phenomenal job. We had over 400 volunteers. We knocked on 35,000 doors. We sent out 65,000 mailers. We started from zero, literally zero. Sippel also faced daunting odds as a Republican in heavily Democratic Boulder County. He received only half the number of votes cast for incumbent Elise Jones. The retired co-founder of El Dorado Natural Spring Water Company says that running as a non-politician allowed him to be more authentic. I tried hard to uh, present to everyone my true feelings and what I, how I felt about every issue and what I might do about it. It it became obvious early on that uh, trying to tell every group what just what they wanted to hear, so that they'd vote for you or donate to you or whatever, was the the wrong way to be. No one could keep their stories straight. I actually wanted to try doing this and trying to be an honest politician, just like uh, we all grew up thinking that politicians were all supposed to be. And uh, in my life right now, I actually have the option to do that. And the rookies learned by doing. Sippel says he had to get the hang of delivering a stump speech. I stopped carrying notes for my speeches two months ago. I I, I first went from my big two-page-long speech uh, notes down to like three-by-five cards and then down to just bullet points and then to nothing. Yeah, after you do it a while, you get good at it and you learn what you're going to talk about and you learn to not be afraid of what questions might come up because you're going to be able to figure out a way to answer them. And Johnson says learning about the pros and cons of the political system was motivating. I think what surprised me most about politics is how deeply entrenched and ingrained the system is that's in place, from ALEC, from the American Legislative Executive Council, to Koch Brother Money, Citizens United. Uh, You know, I think once you take the blinders off and you realize the system at play, you don't have any other choice than to get involved. This has been inspiring, incredibly inspiring. The political newcomers say their first campaigns may not be their last. Both Sippel and Johnson are interested in running for office again. Voters decided on a record number of school funding measures this election, 65, in fact, across 44 districts. The total cost for all of them, $4.4 billion. As CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine reports, about two-thirds of the measures passed. 
The two largest districts, Denver and Jefferson County, accounted for nearly $1.2 billion of the total to fix hundreds of schools and make investments in teachers and students. Denver's measures passed with resounding approval. Jefferson County's didn't. In the capital city, there will be money for renovations, cooling systems, computers, early reading interventions, and more school psychologists and social workers. Denver Superintendent Tom Bosberg says he's grateful to voters. Just an extraordinary opportunity for our kids to have these windows of opportunities open and for our, our, both our children and our teachers to receive the supports that they need and deserve. Denver is one of the lucky ones, with voters almost always willing to support schools. Bosberg knows that's not the case for all districts. Many were forced to go to local voters because of the lack of state funding. Colorado is in the bottom 10 nationally in state spending per pupil. You know, we as a state currently fund our kids at at $2,500 less than even the national average. And And this is uh, in a state which is one of the wealthiest in the country. Governor Hickenlooper's recent budget proposal doesn't keep pace with inflation or the increase in enrollment next year, about 10,000 new students. So going to the ballot at the local level was district's only option. Many rural districts with struggling economies struggled at the ballot box. CPR focused earlier this year on RE1 Valley in the northeastern plains, where students in band play on broken-down instruments. Its measure failed. Superintendent Jan DeLay says state cuts have meant $2 million fewer dollars each year. We've been doing this for the past seven years, so now, now the amputations begin to happen. There's no more trimming of hair. She says class sizes will increase, and the school board may look at cutting athletics, basically anything not tied to the core curriculum. DeLay says the economy played a role. She says commodities for farmers are at an all-time low. Cabela's is being bought out by Bass Pro Shop, and 380 people in Sterling work for Cabela, so she says job instability was on their minds. Greeley School District, meantime, has never passed a property tax increase for schools, and voters continued that tradition. Tom Norton is Greeley's mayor and co-chair of the committee for 3A. He says voters would tell him that schools aren't spending the money right. Most of the time when you could get enough time to explain to them what was going on, uh, most of them uh, agree. But uh, there's always about uh, 30 or 40 percent of the people that are going to vote no regardless of what you tell them. Other large districts where measures failed, the Thompson School District in the Loveland area and Colorado Springs. Jan Martin volunteered with the Colorado Springs campaign. Backers had hoped to put school resource officers, security cameras, nurses, and psychologists in more than 50 schools. Martin thinks the main reason the measures failed. People just don't want to see an increase in taxes. Meantime, major districts that passed measures, Cherry Creek, Aurora, St. Vrain, Eagle Valley, Durango, Falcon School District 49, and Englewood. Vanessa Fritchie, an Englewood parent, said the long ballot made it a challenge to explain schools' often complicated situation. She says people's houses in Englewood were built around the same time as the schools. As she went door-to-door, residents would say, My house is fine. Why are the schools fine? (laughs) Right? She'd explain that education is entirely different now than it was in the 1950s. Everything from security to HVAC systems are outdated, and new ways of teaching, like flexible grouping, means modern schools aren't designed like they were in the 50s. The bond and mill levy override passed and will pay for five new schools. Districts that lost at the ballot could take a page from Adams 12 Five Stars Playbook. 
like nothing I've ever seen in all the years that I've been part of Adams 12. Adams 12 Superintendent Chris Godowski credits a massive organizational effort to pass the bond. A citizens committee met for a year to prioritize the needs. The district hosted a telephone town hall and had multiple gatherings to explain what schools needed and why. Hundreds of volunteers, a canvassing effort that had 400 to 500 people knocking on doors a couple of weeks ago. I think what we saw as a community that really feels like investing in our kids is a great investment in our community's future. For a complete list of how school ballot measures fared, go to our website at cprnews.org. For Colorado Public Radio News, I'm Jenny Brendeen. Find this story and other election reports by CPR's news team at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Thursday. Thanks to my audio engineer, Michael Hughes, and director, Michelle P. Fulcher, producers, Anthony Cotton, Stephanie Wolf, and Andrew Dukakis. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, and our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.